0: Hi, everyone. Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts. And you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome
1: back. State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to be talking about Dismaland. We figured that this was a very appropriate episode for the month of October, so this is our Halloween episode. If you haven't heard of it, Dismaland was Banksy's project this summer um, in England, a a huge installation environment uh, that was uh, obviously, as you can tell by the title, a parody of Disneyland, As the project's subtitle announced, it was an amusement park not suitable for children. Not suitable for children because it was a very political, uh, very disturbing environment that took on a lot of the major issues of today from um, the spread of capitalism to the migrant crisis. Today, Sarah and I are going to be going over the Dismaland project. First, we're going to give you a little bit of background about um, street art and Banksy himself. Uh, Then we'll go into some detail about the project and what it accomplished, and finally wrap up with a discussion of some of the more interesting art-related issues that the project puts on the table. Banksy has a reputation as a street artist, and the first thing I want to do is set out what exactly street art is, or what that term means. Street art is art that obviously is placed in the streets, and that doesn't literally mean uh, on the sidewalk or on the side of a wall, but it means in a public place, in a public environment. Of course, there is another term for art that is viewable from public spaces, and that's simply public art. And the distinction I want to make is that public art is art that is a, a kind of official art for the masses, and it's art that is made... Um, or presented, rather, by a governmental body or by a major corporation. So think of art in, uh, in public plazas, like in here in New York City, um, you know, the art... Uh, in Columbus Circle, for example. Or, th- or
0: art in Chicago, which is where we're recording right now. <laughs> right, or art in
1: Chicago, which is where we're recording right now. So, um, for example, um, Anish Kapoor's very famous installation, the Cloud Gate or the Bean, this giant metallic silver sculpture that is situated in Millennium Park. You know, it's a huge, expensive undertaking. It was, It's a civic uh, project, right, so uh, sort of installed with the official support of the city government. You also see public art taking the form of art made to celebrate sort of nationalistic values or or people. So think of all of the art um, that you'll find in the capitals of Europe representing famous generals, for example, or um, celebrating military victories. So the distinction I'm making is that public art is a kind of official expression of what we would call hegemonic values or sort of mainstream official ideas and ideologies. Street art is, I think, in contrast, generated by individuals or collectives, not always individuals, but sort of it's art from below, right? It's art from people who have not had their opinions sanctioned, right? Who are who are inserting their ideas into public space without having gone through any sort of official um, conduits. So uh, that's what street art's all about. And of course, graffiti is one of the most um, well-known or, or popular forms of street art and what started out as a movement that was really about Writing one's name or tagging and claiming public space, uh, especially by people who perhaps didn't have other forms of access to expressing themselves in you know public dialogue uh so historically sort of disenfranchised communities uh had has now sort of migrated into something that is um more commonly thought of as, as being more fluid or hybrid with art basically that it's it's not just about um you know tagging anymore, although the tagging itself there's an argument that that could be seen as art. In other words, street art has begun to utilize the same strategies and ask the same questions as you find in fine art, so thinking about things like line and color and and form and how form relates to content. Of course, contemporary street art is in a way, always already political because the streets are political, right? The streets are the space in which we, um, you know, encounter a barrage of messages that are communicating values of one sort of another, whether it's a billboard advertising campaign or lawn signs that you'll see in people's front yards for political campaigns. Uh, the space of, of the public is, is always already political. Street art is also always already political because it Directly relates to this question of space: who has access to space, who gets to shape space, and especially in urban areas now, it's very closely intertwined with questions of gentrification. So, because street art is inherently related to questions of real estate and development, um, and because it is inherently related to the creation of a public dialogue and and the exchange of ideas in the public sphere, street art is always already political. Now, Banksy himself is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, street artists whose works of art are not always political, but often um, express very political ideas and agendas. Most notably, he is anti-capitalist, anti-globalization, anti-war, among other sort of traditional, very progressive leftist ideals.
0: Delving more into Banksy's biography is somewhat difficult because we don't actually know who he is. His identity has remained uh, unknown for uh, as long as he's been in the public realm. Uh, There's been lots of speculation about who he is, and there have been internet hoaxes perpetrated claiming that uh, his identity has been unveiled. There's speculation as to whether or not it's actually one person, uh, whether or not it's a man, whether or not it's a, a collective of artists. We do know that he's from Bristol, uh, which is near weston Sir mar which is where Dismaland was actually set up. So uh, the site is in the area that he presumably grew grew up and spent a lot of time in. Um, Bristol is also where his graffiti first started to appear around 1992. Uh, Around 1999, uh, he moved to London um, and started producing works, uh, mostly graffiti works, in London. When we speak about his graffiti, it really has taken multiple forms. He works both with stencils and freehand. Some of the, the earliest works that he produced in, in London um, are really just simple stencils of text that mimic uh, the the kinds that you would find posted, uh, the sort of post bills uh, stenciled texts uh, you see around urban spaces like New York. Um, but these were designed to sort of critique or force viewers to create their critique their own experiences in the public space. So, uh, some examples some examples of this early work include uh, the stencil text "This is not a photo opportunity" that he placed in viewing positions close to major monuments like Big Ben in London or the Eiffel Tower in Paris. So, places where people normally go and spend a lot of time um, photographing themselves, photographing the sites, and so. Uh, placing this text, this is not a photo opportunity. is a way of forcing the viewer to kind of question his or her relationship to that site and and how uh, one occupies this kind of public space. Speaking about the use of of stenciling in graffiti, Banksy said uh, Banksy has said all graffiti is low level dissent, but stencils have an extra history. They've been used to start revolutions and to stop wars.
1: As Banksy himself has also pointed out elsewhere, one of the reasons that stencils are so closely tied to uh, starting revolutions and stopping wars, and in other words, the expression of um, sort of revolutionary ideas, is because they make the writing of graffiti semi automatic and, and therefore much more efficient. It allows people to intervene in places that are perhaps much more public, where you couldn't normally presume to have, say, five or six hours to work on a project.
0: In addition to doing works that are that are primarily text-based, um, uh, Banksy's representational imagery has been um, very political, very politicized, and and um, very visible in in uh, highly contested spaces. So, for example, in two thousand and five, he produced a series of of images on the West Bank wall, the wall that separates. Uh, Palestinian um, from Israeli territories. with these works he's playing with notions of representation and illusionism. so there's a, a an example one of the examples uh, has uh, shows two armchairs and behind them is a window so it's it's he's creating this sort of illusionistic space. You look through the window and it's this uh, very pleasing sort of picturesque. Uh, picturesque landscape. But of course, this is on a wall. This is not what uh, you would actually see through this wall necessarily.
1: So in other words, what Banksy is doing is he's playing against the opacity of that wall and the sort of obdurate materiality, the solidity of that wall, which exists to obstruct communication between these two people's and he's, he's playing with that and, and putting what looks like an opening through that wall. But, of course, you know it's not an opening. So that tension makes you reflect upon, you know, why is it that there is not a, a kind of transparency between these communities? Why is there this wall? Um, and as Sarah pointed out, the image that's being shown is also not simply an image of what one would see on the other side. So it's also about the dreams and aspirations and hopes of, of what could be on the other side of, you know, the wall and also of this moment in history.
0: Because of his deliberate provocations in these public spaces, Banksy's work has often been referred to as interventionist. And that that sort of interventionist um, uh, manner doesn't just take place on the streets, though. It also takes place within uh, these sites of the art world, including major uh, museums. So in 2003, he started intervening in spaces like the Tate Britain, like the Louvre, and like the Met. An early example of this was when he took a, a painting of, again, a sort of picturesque landscape, um, a, 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 an oil on canvas that had been purchased at just a London street fair. Uh, he stenciled over this landscape with uh, blue and white police tape and then took this canvas and brought it into the Tate Britain in London and uh, basically put it up on view without the permission of, of the gallery. I think it was on view for about two hours. That's about how long these things have, have tended to last um, when he's done similar interventions at the at the Met and at the
1: Louvre. While on the one hand, we could think of Banksy's interventions into the museum space as being these kinds of, you know, braggadocious, megalomaniacal statements about how his work is on par with the work of the museums, which is very fitting with the sort of graffiti culture, right? It's all about um, making your mark, right, and claiming space for yourself. Uh, on the other hand, there are also statements of institutional critique and this is an art movement that um, sort of originates in the in the 1970s and that is about making works of art within the space of the gallery or the museum that reflects upon the um, not only the physical space of the gallery or the museum, but also the institutional or discursive space of the gallery or museum. In other words, making viewers question, why are these works here as opposed to other works? Who got to decide that? What criteria were they using in their judgment calls? So uh, Banksy is operating in that tradition by placing these works in the Tate and uh, and other museums, and he has explicitly said how he uh, you know thinks that his generation, which is our generation as well, more or less, has to contend with the fact that because of the internet now, the old elitism of the art world um, has been chipped away out a little bit that. Um, the structures of the art world, where in order to become a fine artist, you you had to go to art school, and you had to develop a portfolio, and you had to find a gallerist, and you know, you have to, um, he says, sleep with the right people, Um, that all of that now has been compromised by the internet, because now anybody can just put their art online for everyone to see. And of course, this doesn't mean that that whole art world doesn't continue existing as it has always existed it certainly does and in fact being an artist in many ways in the past decade or so has become um, even more about a kind of professionalization where you really do have to go to the right art school not just any art school and you have to have the right gallerist you have to be very strategic about building your career so all of that still exists but in a way Banksy is is trying to question in his interventions into um, sort of the mainstream art world what these structures are that are that are governing this professionalization.
0: Well, we find throughout Banksy's work this this form of institutional critique. It's also interesting because there's a a sort of tension in the fact that he has become a very commercially successful artist and galleries and museums kind of vie for his pieces. Um, And he's actually quite self-aware of this. Uh, he said, I love the way capitalism finds a place, even for its enemies. It's definitely boom time in the discontent industry. I mean, how many cakes does Michael Moore get through? Um, so even though it may seem sort of contradictory that he's working outside or critiquing what has become, what have become sort of the standards of the art world in this very um, capitalistic framework He's still very much self-aware of that and kind of works both within and without those those power structures. 2010 was also the year that Banksy released the documentary film Exit Through the Gift Shop, which has brought a lot of attention to him.
1: And, and not only attention, but an Academy Award nomination. I mean, this is a, a critically um, a well-received film and a popular film, and I think they made quite a bit of money off of it. Um, so. This film is, um, I mean, hopefully a number of you have seen it. If not, I think you can get it on Netflix still. Um, It's a a very complicated film in terms of its genesis and the evolution of the project, and it's sort of a film about a film, um, so I'm not going to get into all of that. The the one thing I do want to mention about Exit Through the Gift Shop is that what we do see in this documentary is Banksy preparing his show um, Barely Legal, which happened in L.A. It was one of his first major American films, sort of DIY exhibitions. And while he was in LA, he had an idea to do an intervention at Disney, at Disneyland. And this is um, an earlier example of the same line of thinking that will get us to Dismaland in 2015. For this intervention, he made a doll of a a Guantanamo Bay um, detainee and, and took it to the park and placed it on a ride. And uh, he's there with a, a filmmaker who's filming all of this, and you know, of course, quite quickly the ride is stopped, and then the park security actually um, catches the filmmaker while Banksy uh, escapes, so he can maintain his anonymity. Um, so we can draw a direct line from this intervention at Disneyland to Dismaland, and so what Dismaland is? is this is a project that um, that Banksy created in uh, this, as Sarah mentioned earlier, this seaside resort town um, in Somerset that's quite near where Banksy grew up and he spent some time there as a kid. It was a, a, a whole environment created at uh, a structure called the Tropicana, which is, um, a, or was rather, a lido or an open air swimming pool and recreation site right by the water. And it was opened in 1937, but has not been occupied since 2000. So it's this sort of like crumbling abandoned structure and Banksy got permission to take it over and make it a temporary um, exhibition site for five weeks between late August and late September, and he was inspired by other seasonal attractions that would pop up you know, for Christmas or for the holidays um, in the summer. Dismaland was not simply a, a sort of seasonal attraction though, it was also an art exhibition, And uh, Banksy actually curated this exhibition himself. He invited uh, a, a, the, basically, he said, you know, the best artist he could think of, um, resulting in a group show of more than fifty artists. <clears throat> and apparently, only uh, two artists turned Banksy down, which I think is kind of interesting. Understood as an exhibition, the show is quite successful, especially considering it's not in any um, type of urban environment where you have a high concentration of art galleries and of art, um, you know, or gallery or museum goers. Uh, It basically became a tourist destination, drawing 4,000 attendees per day. On average, 150,000 total visitors uh, came to see the show. And that's kind of amazing, considering that the local population is about 75,000 people. The effect of all of those visitors on the local economy was um, quite extreme. According to the CEO of Visit Somerset, the sort of local tourism board, uh, the show brought in 20 million pounds, or about 30 million dollars in revenue in the local economy. Um, the local hotel business, for example, saw a 50 percent uptick. Um, and again, this is because you know people were traveling not only from around England, but in fact from all around the world to come and see this exhibition because it was only open for a short period of time. As the title indicates, the work is, um, at its heart, a kind of parody of Disneyland. Uh, It is about the kind of consumer-driven spectacle entertainment that is totally mainstream and therefore seems totally innocuous, but in fact, is highly loaded with ideas and to make that a little concrete one could cite you know the gender politics of Disney films which of course was one of the big points of dialogue around the movie Frozen that finally we had a Disney film where where the heroine's role was not simply to meet her prince and and fall in love but rather was um, about a sisterly bond. So Dismaland takes Disneyland and instead of trying to put forward uh, the more familiar um, values associated with Disney, you know, sort of wholesome family entertainment, puts forward a kind of dystopian view of the world. Um, so this is definitely operating in the mode of, of, of satire or parody, which we've talked about before, like with Charlie Hebdo, to, to use different strategies such as hyperbole to draw our attention to realities that already exist um, that we perhaps don't see as absurd but um, by amplifying them become absurd so one of the most iconic works in the show directly engages Disney and Disney's mythology but also opens on more popular culture and this is a piece in which we see a, a it's a huge sculpture of Cinderella in her carriage but the carriage has crashed and cilere- Cinderella um, is sort of spilling out of the crashed carriage and and is dead, and there is a whole sort of phalanx of of paparazzi photographers flashing their bulbs exploiting this terrible tragic scene and so of course this is on the one hand about you know disney princess Cinderella and about the the way that we are emotionally invested in these cultural myths and of course, the Cinderella story is about you know, this um, beautiful girl who's totally taken advantage of, but then who meets her prince, who helps her escape from extreme poverty. Uh, So it's about not only finding very like heteronormative romantic love, but also about the dream of upward mobility and the dream of, you know, getting rich overnight and the dream of, um, you know, becoming more than you are. So um, this highly loaded uh, story uh, is taken and is directly tied to contemporary current events and contemporary culture in the sense that it's quite obviously a reference to Princess Diana, who, of, of course, um, you know, it was uh, a princess, a blonde princess, who um, died in a car crash and. Um, not just died in a car crash, but died in a car crash that was caused by the paparazzi that were hounding her. So it's a statement not only about Disney and the princess myth and how pervasive it is, but also it's a statement about um, our celebrity culture and how it is literally lethal and um, sort of undermines like any common sense of decency or humanity. As a side note, one of the reasons that Banksy was able to make Dismaland, which you know obviously is a parody of Disneyland in the title, is thanks to uh, very recent changes in UK law. As recently as late 2014, they have expanded the protections in the UK for using copyrighted materials for the purposes of parody, pastiche, and caricature. So, formerly these laws were much more restrictive than they are in America, but now the UK has broadened the protections for um, parodic works of art. So. Dismaland is um, not only something that has been enabled by the passing of these laws, but also is probably a kind of meta-commentary on the fact that now something like this is possible in England not all of the works in Dismaland are so directly related to Disney. Um, Another example is by the artist Bill Barminski, and he created the um, sort of security clearance area that was the entrance to Dismaland. So when you entered, you had to pass through, just like when you're boarding a plane and you have to go through a TSA checkpoint, you had to pass through um, this uh, security zone and all of the structures are actually made out of cardboard, except for the security guards, who are real people who are standing there. And much like TSA agents, or you know, were instructed to just look really disaffected and bored and grumpy. Um, so you're passing through this area. There are these security guards, um, and I th- think what's going on here with the fact that you know all of the. Um, you know, like screening devices are made out of cardboard. Is the artist is trying to suggest how flimsy our security measures really are? And when you pass through the security zone into Dismaland, of course, it's pure theater. and You know, they're not actually screening you for anything. Your security is not being enhanced in any way. And so, I think uh, the artist is trying to suggest that the same thing happens when we go through uh, security screenings now. Moving on now to consider some of the major issues that Dismaland puts on the table that are related to trends in, in contemporary art, the first one I want to deal with is this question of parody and satire. Anybody who spent any time with contemporary art is probably aware of the fact that uh, parody and satire is a major mode of contemporary art right now that we see a lot of artists working with humor in order to make a kind of point and in fact And in fact, one of our earliest episodes on Kara Walker's work, A Subtlety, could be considered um, a a fantastic example, I think, of this mode where she is, um, as we had mentioned, playing with these very negative stereotypes, so she's co-opting these negative stereotypes of African-American people, particularly the image of the black mammy, and she's, she's taking that and she's diverting it, putting it to new uses in order to critique that stereotype. This mode of contemporary art that is, that is parodic or satirical is directly opposed to um, a more earnest uh, kind of expression, which uh, we can find in the work of another artist that we've talked about, Thomas Kincaid, although artist is a generous term there. Of course, in Kincaid's work, he's, um, it's, it's all about a kind of authenticity. In terms of, of parody and satire, um, relatedly, an, another major trend in contemporary art is just is humor, and, and not just humor, but stand-up comedy. In fact, there have been multiple exhibitions recently devoted to stand-up comedy, so the idea of using comedy to make a point, using something that's funny to make a point, is actually a, a sort of mainstream current, and I think we can connect that to Banksy's work. Another major trend um, that Dismaland engages in contemporary art is site specificity, and we've also talked about this before. Again, Kara Walker would be another example of site specificity, where you see an artist making an installation, so making an environmental work of art that has to be um, passed through, that has to be experienced and moved around, that's not just a single object, but an environment, a space, a site and that that site actually is um, not arbitrary, but is a direct response to the actual local area, the neighborhood, the city in which that site is being built. So just as Kara Walker's work was a direct response to the factory in which it was located, which was formerly a a sugar factory, um, Dismaland is also a response to the local town that it's sited in, and it's a comment upon the sort of changing economic realities related to tourism in the UK so these seaside towns are really sites of nostalgia whether it's the nostalgia that Banksy feels for his own childhood or more broadly a nostalgia for an earlier and simpler time when people went to the you know the seaside and engaged in really innocent entertainments. Um, Think about the nostalgia that we have here in America for the boardwalk and how you would go to Coney Island and you would, you know, um, have these sort of innocent afternoons. And, of course, Coney Island was never all that innocent, and it's definitely not that innocent now. But... um, that kind of um, nostalgia for a former way of life that's wrapped up in an, an economy, a, a local economy that now has seen a profound shift, right? So if this city had been booming, I don't think Tropicana would be, um, you know, abandoned for 15 years, although actually the site has, um, you know, as recently as 2013 actually was supposed to be um, redeveloped, but obviously that hasn't happened yet. Banksy's interest in the the economic and the social history of this particular town speaks to his ongoing interest um, and not only his interest but the interest of the art world in globalization and in resisting globalization. So making a work of art that is about a specific site is always inherently a way to make art that resists this idea that you know now, thanks to the Internet, we all live in sort of one global community. And, of course, that's not the political reality. That's not the cultural reality, but that was very much the rhetoric of the 90s, which is actually coming out of the rhetoric of the 60s, the whole like one-world movement. Um, and it's a wonderful utopian dream, and I hope we get there eventually and we erase national boundaries and all of that, but but we have to be very careful about how we erase those boundaries. And one of the major arguments against globalization is that, yes, it, re- it erases national boundaries and political difference, but only by erasing cultural difference and by repressing local culture and substituting authentic local culture and um, tradition and experience with the American capitalism, basically, an American culture. Um, So uh, is that really what we want, right? Is that the price we want to pay for um, erasing global conflict? And so artists who engage anti-globalization are thinking about how to understand place as actually being specific and local and that not every place is the same, right? I mean, this work of art is very specific to England and to the seaside town and um you know you couldn't just make it in any city and this is very different from you know the the classic modernist model of a painting or a sculpture that exists like in a bubble and that you can you can buy and sell and trade it and just move it around and it doesn't make any difference right so if we want to be more cynical about the trend towards site specificity, we could connect it to something that we have also talked about um, on other episodes of this podcast, and that's the fact that Given uh, the recent sort of downturn in the economy, given the recent recession, cultural institutions are finding that they are suffering um, financially, that the traditional sources of support, whether it was the government or um, individual benefactors or corporate benefactors, that these sources of support, um, you know, have um, dried up a little bit because they're hurting from the recession. So in order to compensate for that, there's been a greater um, emphasis on ticket sales in an age in which anyone with internet access can draw up uh, an image of of almost any work of art on their screen. Museums are finding that one way to, to draw in customers again is to offer experiences that can't be drawn up on a screen. So Um, time-based media, performance art, um, site-specific art, all of these things are becoming uh, more popular. And now, this is not to say that this is the only reason these things are becoming more popular. I'm not a total cynic. I do think that this work is also art historically important and has an agenda of its own that it's accomplishing. But I I also don't want to ignore the the reality that it does play into a sort of larger economic situation in the museum. Finally, I want to mention the trend of artists becoming curators. And this is... um, you know, on the one hand not really a a contemporary trend. We do see that earlier in the 20th century, if not even before, artists are organizing exhibitions, showing the works of their friends. I mean we we could even think of the Impressionist exhibition of 1874, that first exhibition of Impressionism which the Impressionists organized themselves as being a, a seminal example of artists being curators, um, and making choices about what art should be exhibited and, and creating uh, experiences, creating aesthetic e- experiences for people. However, this trend has certainly accelerated in the past you know two decades, let's say. Uh, a prominent example is the Museum of Modern Arts series called Artist Choice. And this is where they um, invited artists to come to the museum and uh, take a work of art and, and put it on display. Artists acting as curators may not be new, but what certainly is new that I think Dismaland speaks to a little bit is the phenomenon of everyone becoming a curator. I mean, um, I think it was a crate and barrel catalog that I noticed a while ago that had an ad for a table that had a glass top and, you know, uh, said, well, look, you can use this table to curate your own collection of objects. So apparently all you have to do is buy a table, and that makes you quote-unquote a curator. And of course, we have the term curator being applied to not only people who organize works of art and objects, but people who organize experiences, people who select uh, food items or, or wine. Um, the term has certainly um, come to be used in, in many, many different contexts beyond simply in the art world. And... This is a much larger can of worms um, that we're opening here, but I just want to put on the table that you know we should ask ourselves: What does it mean to curate? What are the you know what is the process of curating about? What qualifies someone to be a curator? What skills are necessary? Um, how does a curator come to make judgments? Um, so you know, with with Dismaland, I think he just asked the best artist he could think of. So that suggests that his process was quite personal and subjective, um, which is not typically what a curatory process is like in a museum context. At the same time, the fact that Banksy asked other people to contribute to this project indicates his larger political program, that he is here creating a situation in which we have a multiplicity of voices, not just one. So again, the idea that street art is about having not one official voice or about resisting that one official voice with the voices of many, and including um, voices that dissent, not simply agree. Now, um, I will admit that all of the voices that are contributing to Disneyland seem to be saying the same thing, which is um, you know contributing to banksy 's larger project of 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 parody and satire and of countering this sort of endless sunny optimism of capitalism with a very dystopian dyspeptic vision of the world and um it 's not to say that he 's a total nihilist right that the the ultimate outcome is that you will see these things and you will be disturbed, and then things will change as a result of that that you will act differently or that um we can come to sort of a different political situation. A final issue that this work raises is the relationship between aesthetics and politics and that's a very thorny issue and I'm going to try to unpack that a little bit on the postscript on our website. So if you want to know more about that please point your browser to www.arthistory.today. Although the Dismalant exhibition
0: is is no longer functioning. It's it's shut down at the end of the it's planned five-week run at the end of September. uh, It has continued to be present in the news, specifically relating to the current refugee crisis. So just a little bit of background uh, about that situation. In 2004, the United Nations declared that more people had been forcibly displaced internationally than at any point since World War II. So at that point in 2004, the UN estimated that there were about 51 million refugees worldwide. Uh, Just in the intervening 10 to 11 years, uh, estimates place that number to closer to 60 million, so 10 million more uh, displaced uh, people in the world than there were in 2004. The UN argues that this is largely due to the civil war in Syria, and uh, Europe has been a key site for relocation that's been a, a location that a lot of refugees have aimed toward uh there have been a lot of debates over in various nations in Europe specifically over whether or not to accept refugees how to do so how many to uh how many to accept um some countries have been more willing than others to allow for the influx of refugees germany has been one that's been credited with Uh, With um, having more of an open policy towards refugees, other countries not so much. Um, And within Dismaland there was a specific reference to the migrant uh, crisis. There was uh, a pond where visitors could actually steer uh, these remote control boats and within uh, one of these boats were uh, crammed figures of migrants and uh, they were this is a reference to the ferry between Calais in France and the Cliffs of Dover in England. So it's one of the main avenues uh, for movement between France and and England. And uh, with this part of Dismaland, Banksy notes that in the, the remote control boat pond, it randomly switches the boat you operate, so you have no control over whether your destiny is to be an an asylum seeker or a Western superpower. So... Uh, whether or not you're in control of the boat that has the migrants or whether or not you're in control of uh, one of the boats that's uh, representing the governmental power that kind of decides who goes back and forth. That's something that is constantly shifting. So ultimately it's uh, Banksy's commenting on the, the sort of arbitrariness of one's experience. We ultimately don't have control over where we're born. Uh, and only have so much control over where you end up, whether you end up in a place of privilege. Following the the the, the end of the ex- exhibition run, uh, parts of Dismaland were actually broken down and sent to a major migrant camp in Calais, in France. And this was a, a refugee camp that has ex- existed since at least 2009. It houses uh, approximately five to six thousand refugees. And uh, the refugees are um, people who have been primarily displaced from Syria and Libya. And so following the end of, of the Dismaland run, uh, Banksy had parts of the site actually torn down and, uh, and sent to Calais in order to create these uh, makeshift shelters and huts for the migrants in, in this particular camp. While the tearing down of Dismaland and then sending it to uh, this refugee site as a form of of aid to uh, to these displaced people may may seem as a as a humanistic gesture. there's still commentary at play here. So, for instance, the the sign for Dismaland was placed in the Calais site, but the letters were, reorganized so now that it says dismal aid rather than dismal land in this in this sort of appropriation of the, the elements from dismal land it becomes a commentary on the insufficient aid or the really
1: terrible uh, conditions within this refugee camp following upon what Sarah has been saying i think it's possible to make a connection between Banksy's earlier interventions in the art world, um, his earlier interventions into public space, and now his intervention into the refugee crisis. And I have to wonder if, just like his interventions in the museums that are pulled down after just a few hours, or just at, like his intervention at Disneyland that um, you know was also pulled, if the structures that he's built and the signage he's put up will uh, be up for a while. Our hope, of course, is that Uh, This most recent Banksy project is uh, taken down very quickly because the migrants will have be relocated to a more permanent location, but um, unfortunately that doesn't seem to be anything that's going to be in the works very soon. If there are updates to the story in the coming weeks, you'll be able to find them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash arthistorytoday, or on our Twitter account twitter.com slash arthist today a-r-t-h-i-s-t-t-o-d-a-y we'd love to hear your feedback if you want to engage with us either on facebook or twitter you can also contact us via our website which is where we hope you will now go to read more about Dismaland we've got many links uh, to both news articles about Dismaland and also videos about the project and also photos of the work so we hope you will take some time to explore this further And of course our website is www.arthistory.today.